We'll just kind of be introducing the chapter today. So if you aren't standing, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm just going to read verse 1. And the God-breathed Word reads, Receive one who is weak in faith, weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Father, I ask that you would come now, that you would help both preacher and listener alike, that your spirit would descend in this place, that I would decrease that you may increase. Nothing I say can profit any, rather saved or unsaved, you must breathe upon it. Would you help me, Father? For all I can do is fail. As Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? So may you grant me to preach by grace, through faith. Might you grant life in this place this morning. Sanctification, conforming many to the image of Christ. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, we come to chapter 14 in the book of Romans. Just a little background where we are now. So, we've had 11 chapters where Paul just dealt with all of the ins and outs of justification by faith. Now, if you're not familiar with that, children, just be, to be justified, it's a big word. It's not that difficult. So, let's say, you know, your, your brother or sister hits you. And you yelled at them. And of course, your parents, hearing that, they come and they get onto you. Well, you say, but they hit me. So you're trying to justify yourself. You're trying to say you had the right to yell at them because they hit you. You're guilty, but you're trying to declare yourself righteous. And that's what it means to be justified. To be justified is we, everyone in here, we are all guilty sinners. So to be justified is to be declared righteous, declared right before God. And how does this happen? It only happens through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What is faith? I like an acronym I heard recently. An acronym, of course, a word, and every letter of that word has a phrase or a word attached to it. So we have faith, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all, I take him. As Jesus says, if anyone does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. He cannot be my follower. He cannot be a Christian. So this is justification by faith. In chapter 12, we see Paul, he takes a turn and he says, therefore, therefore, by everything I've just said, I've told you, I've given you the doctrine, the body of the faith. Therefore, how are we to live? He says, by the mercies of God, the mercies of God that he's just shown us for 11 chapters. He says, by the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God as your reasonable service. And he begins speaking of how we are to live based off what Christ has done for us. And it's always in that order. We can all go out and try to live and try to obey Romans 12 and through the end. And we can try that all of our lives with all of our strength. And we'll try that all the way to hell if we do not begin with Jesus Christ with the faith, which we'll look at in a second. 
So Paul, as he, he speaks of how we ought to live, the main theme that runs through these chapters is love. Starting in chapter 12, he says, let love be without hypocrisy. And he speaks of love shown to your brothers and sisters in the church. When we get down to about verse 17 in chapter 12, it goes from one another to all men. And he began speaking of showing love towards your enemies. Getting into chapter 13, he speaks of showing love toward the government and paying your taxes and respect, so on and so forth. And as Jeff preached over last week, he explains how love is the fulfillment of the law and how love is essential to living a holy life. And continuing the theme of love, we now come to chapter 14. Again, he says, receive one who is weak and the faith. So, as I mentioned earlier, we have that word faith. Receive one who is weak in the faith. So, this text, he is talking to those who are of the faith. If you are not of the faith this morning, nothing in this text will help you. You can seek to obey this text. That will not save your soul. You must be of the faith. And as I said, the first 11 chapters in the book of Romans deals with the faith. So the first three chapters, Paul spends just condemning everyone, showing us that we are all sinners. Rather, you're religious Rather, you're pagan, just worldly, showing everyone that we are sinners. In chapter 3, starting in verse 10, kind of sums it all up, going back to the Old Testament. And he says, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. We all have turned aside. Together, we have become worthless. Coming down to... Verse 19, he starts dealing with the law. So we we can say, yeah, we're not righteous, but at least we can try to keep God's law. But he says, no. What the law says, it says to those who are under the law, thank you, brother, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be guilty before God. For by the deeds of the law, No flesh is justified or declared righteous. But through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law cannot help us. We cannot help ourselves. There's only one. And he says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law. So there is a righteousness that isn't of us keeping the law. And this righteousness is provided Only through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's to all and upon all who believe. Anyone in here this morning, if you are not of the faith, you can leave this place and be in the faith. Rather, you're a child, you're young. Believe on Jesus Christ. Which, as I said, faith, forsaking all, I take him. Realize you are a sinner. Your sin condemns you to hell. You have no hope. And you forsake everything. You forsake your good. You forsake your bad. You forsake everything. You take hold of Christ and his promises in the word. You may have, maybe you're thinking, you know, I'll I'll get saved when I get older. No. How do you know that day's coming? You do not know when you will take your last breath. So those who are of the faith, this text applies to you, and I trust many of us here are of the faith. So how how can you know if you're of the faith? Well, getting into chapter 5, Paul starts dealing with what, what happens 
He starts with inward and goes outward. In chapter 5, he says, okay, you're justified by faith. You're declared righteous by faith. By the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is apart from the law. He says you have peace with God. You have access into grace. Says you have been made righteous by one man's obedience, by the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. Going into chapter 6, he says, now when this happened, you have died with Jesus Christ. You are dead with him. And just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you too should walk in newness of life. You are no longer a slave of sin. You are a slave of righteousness, a slave of God to bear fruits for holiness. Yes, we still struggle with sin. We see that in chapter 7. In chapter 8, he says, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes into how we have been given the Holy Spirit. We walk a new life in the power of the Spirit. And by the Spirit, we can put sin to death. Anyone in here this morning? All of us deal with sin. But if you are of the faith, you have the power of the Almighty God at work in you. You can put to death that sin. And as I said, I trust many of us are of the faith this morning. So back to our text. Three questions. He says, receive one who is weak in the faith. So who is Paul addressing? When he says to receive, this word actually means to take and make one's own, to take something to yourself. So he's telling someone to receive one who is weak in the faith. That brings our second question. Who is the one who is weak in the faith? What does it mean to be weak in the faith? Now, first of all, notice it doesn't say who has a weak faith. This isn't dealing with those who have a weak faith. The one weak in the faith may actually have a very strong faith. The faith, we just dealt with that. The body of doctrine, body of teaching that he has just dealt with in the first 11 chapters. So it's not that he has a weak faith trusting in God, but his understanding of the body of doctrine and how it applies to him. Still, it it needs to be strengthened as he grows. So third question. He says, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So what are these doubtful things? So one at a time. Who is Paul addressing? Well, if we look in verse 2, it begins with the word for. So for is a connecting word. It connects verse 1 to verse 2. So, He says, for one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. So we see who the weak person is, the one who eats only vegetables. So there's one who believes he may eat anything, all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. If we look at chapter 15, verse 1, this person is referred to the strong. This is the one strong in his understanding of the faith. And he believes he made all things. Is that true? Well, yes. Scripture tells us that. It is true. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus addressing his disciples, he says, Nothing that goes into you can make you unclean, for it does not go into the heart, but into the stomach. It's eliminated, thus purifying all foods. We see in Acts chapter 10, Peter is given a vision. God lowers down a a curtain, as it were. And he says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. He's like, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. But he says, do not call unclean or common what I have called clean. And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. 
for it's sanctified or set apart by the word of God and by prayer. So indeed, scripture does say that we can need all things. So this is the strong believer. He has a strong understanding of his freedom in Christ. Now, the weak believer, on the other hand, the one weak in the faith, he eats only vegetables. Why? Scripture doesn't say that. Well, a little background. So, in the Roman church is a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. If you aren't familiar with that, the Jews were the chosen people of God, a nation that he uh, purchased, that he got out of the land of Egypt from under Pharaoh. And everyone born into that line was a Jew. Now, the Gentiles were all the nations outside of that. So now we have a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, people with very different backgrounds. For the Jew, they would have had a background that had religious days and things like that they observed, which we'll see in this text. Now, the Gentiles, on the other hand, they had a pagan and idolatrous background where they worship false gods. And one thing they would do is they would partake of meat that was sacrificed to these false gods, sacrificed to idols. And often the meat that wasn't eaten at the feast, it would be sold in the next day on the market. So this Gentile who he didn't have a strong understanding that he can eat all things, he came from this background. And he wants nothing to do with that. And he knows they sell it on the market the next day. So he says, well, just so I won't accidentally eat something offered to idols, I'm only going to eat vegetables. Because he has a weaker understanding of his freedom in Christ. We are to show love to one another. We're to receive one another. Rather, you have a strong understanding this morning, or rather you have a weak understanding. We're to receive one another. We're not to debate. We're not to argue. Now, there is a place for instruction, which we'll see in a minute, Lord willing. But we must love one another. We must receive one another. Take one another to ourselves. These things that... We may disagree over. We must cover them in love. I pray that's you this morning. But with that being said, let's look a little deeper as Paul explains this more in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians will be the next book over. Now while you're turning there, just a little background. The book, First uh, Corinthians, is um, a letter Paul wrote to a Gentile church. The Gentiles, not the people of God. Now, there were some Jews in the church because in chapter 7, he actually addresses those who are circumcised, which only the Jews would do. So there are some Jews, but largely it's a Gentile church, not a Jewish church. Very similar to this church in here this morning. So, in the first four chapters of this book, he deals, he deals with some different issues in there. But this book can really be divided into sections. The first main section is through, in chapters 1 through 4, where he deals with boasting in men, boasting in preachers. They got, I, some are saying, I'm a Paul. I like Paul's preaching. Some say, I like Apollos. You know, we have the same thing today. I like John MacArthur. I like Bodie Bauckham. You know, there, there's nothing wrong with having favorites. I'm not, you know, condemning that. But those who would receive one and reject another, though the other preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ, is indeed sinful. But then, in chapter 5, he deals with the subject of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of a committed marriage relationship, which he deals with marriage in chapter 7. And that brings us to chapter 8, 
where he begins addressing this issue, as we see in verse 1, now concerning things offered to idols. So who is he addressing here? Well, if you go to verse 7, you see that he's speaking to the weak. So just as in chapter 14, Paul here is speaking to those who are strong in their understanding. It says, now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. So why do the strong, how, how come the strong can embrace their liberty, their freedom in Christ? It's because they have knowledge. Now, this word knowledge is not just knowing some facts. See, English, we say knowledge, you know, it's kind of general. In Greek, they are very specific. This knowledge here is not the Greek word oida, which means knowledge by observation. It's not ginosko, which means knowledge by experience. This is uh, gnosis, which means knowledge of application, functional knowledge. Okay, knowledge that understands how to apply this to yourself. That's what he's speaking of. So the strong, they have a knowledge of how to apply the word of God to themselves. But he gives a warning. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Love builds up. See, knowledge without love, it does nothing but puff you up. You look down at others. They don't know as much as me, and we despise them. I hope that's no one in here this morning. It's very simple. Now, is he setting knowledge and love up against each other? No. See, love is like a blind man, but knowledge gives love eyes. We must have knowledge, but that knowledge must be controlled by love. In verse 2, he says, if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Speaking of those who have the knowledge that puffs up without love, it's like, you think you know anything? You know nothing. Any of us in here who claim to have knowledge, you may have knowledge. If you do not have love, you are nothing. Your knowledge is nothing. If I can be honest, this is an area you can all keep me in prayer. Because I always, I I pray that God would grant me always to have my knowledge controlled by love. In verse 3, he says, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So this is interesting. Why doesn't he say if anyone loves his brother? Isn't that what he's speaking of? Well, because as, as John tells us in his epistle, in 1 John, that true love, it originates from God. God is love. So the person with knowledge must be filled with the love of God. And it says this one is known by him. In other words, he approves of him. Now in verse 4, he speaks of, what this knowledge, knowledge and understanding is. He says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods and so-called lords, <clears throat> whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So what is it saying? Is it saying the weak, they, they just don't have knowledge, they just don't know that's, That's not what it's saying because the knowledge we just looked at is essential for even being a Christian. They wouldn't be a Christian. They wouldn't be of the faith if they didn't have this knowledge. So what's it saying? Well, as I said earlier, gnosis, it means knowledge that you can apply. You understand how to apply it to you. 
themselves. So the weak, they have a weak understanding of how this knowledge applies in any certain situation. And here we see in how this knowledge applies to how they're free to eat all things. But it says their conscience being weak is defiled. So why does it say their conscience is weak? Well, because your conscience is directly connected to what you know and understand. Everyone in here has a conscience. You've had a conscience conscience from birth. And when you were saved, if you, if you are saved, if you are of the faith, your conscience is informed by your knowledge and understanding of the word of God. And God has given us our conscience, rather weak or strong, he's given us our conscience to protect us, which we'll look at a little more later. So how is the one strong in the faith? How is he to conduct himself toward the one weak in the faith? Well, we see five things here. First of all, the strong should instruct him patiently. See, in verse 8, it says, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. You know, often we're like, well, there's a problem here. I'm not even going to deal with it. But no. Uh, We who are strong in our understanding of the faith, we are to instruct those who are weak. But we must conduct ourselves toward them in a certain way. So we should instruct them patiently. In verse 9 and 10, we see we should consider them thoughtfully. Verse 9, but beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in the idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat things offered to idols? We have to consider those who are weak because they're looking at us with our knowledge, our understanding. And they're like, wait, if they can do it, then I can do it, even if it's against their conscience. And they defile their own conscience. You who are strong, you can cause the weak to defile their conscience, to stumble and sin. And what we see next, that we can actually cause them very much harm. So we should instruct them patiently, protect them diligently, but thirdly, We should protect them. Or let me say that again. We should instruct them patiently. We should consider them thoughtfully. And now we should protect them diligently in verse 11. And because your knowledge shall your weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Shall he perish? We all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not, same word, perish. So if he is speaking to a believer, why is he warning about him perishing? Even if he's weak in the faith. I mean, doesn't Jesus Christ say, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, nor shall anyone snatch them out of my hands. Well, indeed. But there is a real sense that a Christian should have a healthy fear of hell. There is a real sense. We don't have time to open that up. But just consider, read through the Gospels, consider how many times Jesus warns the apostles of hell. Just one example. In John 15, okay, after, this is after Judas has left. So he has the 11 apostles that the church is going to be built off of. You're like, if you'll need to warn anyone about hell, certainly it's them. But he says to them, if you do not abide in me, if you don't continue in me, you will be cut off as a branch and withered and thrown into the fire and burned. Why, Jesus? These are Christians. These are the apostles. You chose them. 
Well, it's because as Christians, we must realize that we are sinners. And it is the grace of God that uses this warning of hell, warning of destruction to keep us, to keep the fear of God in us. So we should embrace that. So we should protect the weaker brother. But why is he in danger of perishing? Because as we saw, if we don't consider them, we teach them to disobey their conscience. And like I said, God has given you your conscience to protect you. And if you teach them to disobey their conscience, to defile their conscience, then they're going to go further and further and further and further because, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, their conscience will be seared as with a hot branding iron. So we must protect those who have a weak understanding in the faith. But also, we should not sin against them, wound them sinfully. We should not wound our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 12, when you thus sin against the brethren, you wound the weak weak conscience and you sin against Christ. You're like, how does that work? So my brother, he has a weaker understanding of the faith. And if I cause him to disobey his conscience, I sin against him. Okay, I get that, Paul. How do I sin against Christ? Well, if you recall in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus Christ appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, or his name was Saul then, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No, why are you persecuting me? In Matthew 25, Jesus says, What you do to the least of these, my brethren, you do unto me. So, how we conduct ourselves toward another brother or sister in Christ, we actually do to Christ Jesus, the King of glory himself. So we should not sin and wound our weaker brethren. And sin against Christ. And lastly, not only should we instruct them patiently, not only should we consider them thoughtfully and protect them diligently and not wound them sinfully, but we should adjust ourselves accordingly. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, after all of this has been said, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. We should consider, even if their understanding is wrong, we who are strong in the faith, out of love, we should be like, okay, I will adjust myself. And I will not cause you to stumble. This may be right to do, but you know what? It's wrong for you. Because it goes against your conscience. And I'm not going to cause you to go against your conscience. But if you will, go back to Romans 14. Let's address that last question. So we've looked at who Paul was addressing. The one with a strong understanding of faith. We've looked at who is the weak in the faith. But then he says, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So what are these doubtful things? Well, first of all, these doubtful things, they are non-moral issues. They don't have to do with the law of God. See, if the law of God says this, and you don't do it, you're in sin. There's no doubt about that. These are things that the word of God doesn't specifically condemn or commend. So what are these doubtful things? Well, as I said earlier, we have the Jews who have a religious background. We have the Gentiles who have a background of idol worship. We saw in verse 2, probably speaking of the Gentile, 
One Gentile believes he may eat all things. He's had that background, eating idol feasts. But now it's come to the faith. And maybe he's been of the faith longer, and he got a stronger understanding. And he's like, wait, we can eat all things. I don't need to worry about eating food that may have been sacrificed to idols last night. And the weaker Gentile, the one with the weaker understanding, he's like, no, I don't want to accidentally eat something offered to idols. But what about the Jew? Look down at verse 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. So the Jews have a religious background where they celebrated these religious days, these feasts, these holy days. So the stronger Jew, he's realized, I'm free from that. While the one weaker in understanding is like, man, I've grown up my whole life observing these things. I just, I just can't ignore these days with a good conscience. Now, are there modern day examples of these things? Of these non-moral issues that Christians, we might, if we let them, they might cause divisions among us? Of course there are. We can start here. Alcohol. Some Christians are like, you know what? It's, it's not wrong to have a drink. And it's not. The Bible doesn't condemn it. It condemns getting drunk. I mean, how many times does Paul say, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God? I hope that's no one in here this morning. However, the Bible does not condemn having a drink. However, some believers, because their understanding isn't quite developed as much, a weaker understanding, they're like, no. I can't drink any alcohol. They may even go as far to saying, I can't even go into a bar. Well, what about entertainment? Some believers are like, hey, secular entertainment, secular music, movies, television. No, I can't do that. Some believers, that's fine. Of course, there are things we can't watch, can't listen to, that the Bible specifically speaks on. But... We are free. It doesn't necessarily have to be a worship song. And we can still live for the glory of God. You know, I've even known some believers, they won't even listen to certain worship music because they know the artists. And they're like, this artist probably isn't a Christian by what doctrine, what teaching they hold on to. So they don't even listen to their music. You know, here's one. How about guns? How about weapons? Some believers are like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not being who I am called to be if I don't have a gun to protect my family if something happens. Some believers are like, no, it's a sin for me to have a gun. Different conscious, conscience issues. So we say, well, is conscience really that big deal if The word of God does not condemn something. Yet my conscience, I can't do it with a good conscience before God. Is it that big a deal? Well, look down at verse 14. Paul says, I know and am convinced by the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean of itself. But to him who considers anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Interesting. Paul is saying, Paul the Apostle, I'm convinced nothing is unclean. But if it's unclean to you, to you it's unclean. Verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure. Again. But it is evil for the man who eats with offense takes it a step further. It's not only unclean, it's evil. Then verse 23, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith for whatever is not from faith 
is sin. Listen, brothers, sisters, to go against your conscience is to do that which is unclean, to do that which is evil, and to do that which is a sin against the holy and righteous God. You say, but, but the Bible doesn't condemn it. Your conscience does. It says, if you cannot partake in that with a, without a doubt in your heart, if you have any doubt that this is fully pleasing in the eyes of your God, if you do it anyway, that is sin. Romans chapter 2 speaks of that. We must be diligent to obey our conscience. Why? Because God has given our conscience to protect us. As I mentioned earlier, let's take alcohol. Let's say one has a strong understanding in the faith. They're like, hey, I can drink alcohol. One has a weaker understanding. Hey, I cannot drink alcohol. Well, should the strong be like, hey, it's okay. Let's go have a drink. Well, as we already said, he just sinned against the weaker brother. But consider this. Maybe the weaker brother has a, a um, if he gets a drink, he will not be able to control himself. He lacks self-control. And God, who knows all things, gave him this conscience because he knows, yes, it may be okay to drink, but if he drinks, he will go further and further and further. And pretty soon, this man is a drunkard because he disobeyed his conscience. Brother, sister, God has given you a conscience out of his love, out of his protection of you. Do not despise this. So, conscience is a very big issue. But one more question. Because in so many other places in Scripture, Paul is against these things. Like observing days, like uh, forbidding certain foods. For example, 1 uh, Timothy chapter 4. He calls those who would tell you to abstain from foods. He says they're seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Paul is completely against that. In Galatians chapter 4, he calls observing days, these feasts. He says... They are weak and beggarly elements. Why would you desire to be in bondage to them? He even says, I fear for you that my labor might have been in vain. I preach the gospel to you for no reason, for I preach the gospel. You're free from these things, but you're going back to these things. So why is Paul here? It seems like he's okay with them. Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. Here, these things are a conscience issue. And in other places in Scripture, the false teachers are coming in. And they're making them a salvation issue. You must observe these days if you are to be saved. You must not eat these foods if you are to be saved. We see this today. There's many others who claim to be Christians. Let's take Seventh-day Adventists. Oh, we got to hold to these days? Oh, we can't eat these things. Why? Is it a conscience issue? No. We must do them to be saved. We must reject that. We're saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. As I said, our righteousness is apart from the law. We must not seek to establish our own righteousness. With that being said, with a few minutes left, I'd like to go back to Romans chapter 9. Look at where Paul deals with this. Romans chapter 9, verse 30. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness 
have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This stone is Christ. So we have the Gentiles. They don't go to the law and say, I'm going to keep the law. I'm going to save myself. They don't go to the law. They go to Christ and receive him by faith. They forsake all for Christ. And they attain a righteousness that is not their own, the righteousness of Christ. But the Jew, he says, I'm going to go to the law. And I'm going to gain my own righteousness. But he doesn't gain righteousness at all. As Isaiah says, your righteousness is filthy rags. He doesn't attain anything. And he stumbles over Christ. Continuing in verse 10, Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. That is my desire and prayer for anyone in here that is not saved this morning. He says, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Listen, it doesn't matter how passionate you are about God, If it's not according to the knowledge of the word of God, you can be passionate about God all the way to hell. That will not save you. That's why the word of God is so essential. Explaining this, verse 3 says, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Listen. Rather, you are like that Gentile. It's like, I'm not going to eat these things. I'm not going to do these things. I know these things are bad. My friends do these things. I'm not going to do these things. And I'm going I'm to be righteous before God. That won't save you. You might be like, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to observe these things. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to go to vacation Bible school. I'm going to say my prayers. I'm going to get up early in the morning. I'm going to be righteous before God. That will not save you. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It's only salvation one way. It's through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. So anyone out here that has not forsaken all for Christ, I implore you, I beg you this morning, do not leave this place trusting in your own righteousness. You say, I'm better than my friends. That doesn't matter. There's a billion people in hell that kept the law more than any of us, namely the Pharisees. That's not going to save you. Forsake all for Christ. Everything, you're good, you're bad. He says if anyone seeks to find his life, he will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, You will keep it. Do you want to lose your life? Then seek to find your life. Live your life your own way. Seek to establish your own righteousness. But if you want to find your life and keep your life for all eternity, forsake all to take hold of Christ. For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness to everyone who believes. And brothers and sisters, those of us who have and are, for we must do this daily, who have and are forsaking all things for Christ, let us love our brothers and sisters who have a weaker understanding of the faith. Let us not cause them to stumble. Let us not sin against them and wound their weak conscience. 
Let us consider them thoughtfully, instruct them patiently, protect them diligently, not sin against them, and wound their weak conscience. And let us adjust ourselves accordingly. Why? Because we love them. Let's love our brothers and our sisters. And let us be diligent to obey God, not just simply and go into the word of God and saying, okay, that's wrong, that's right. But even the conscience he has given us to protect us. Father, I thank you for this word. Father, I know I have failed you. But I pray, Father, that you will now, that you will now come, that you will now take all of the, the chaff out of what was spoken, out of what was preached. And you would only let that, which is gold, fall upon these listeners. I pray for anyone in here who is not of the faith, who has not forsaken all for Christ. Maybe they're trusting in their own righteousness. They're like, well, I'm not, I don't do these things, therefore I'm righteous. Or I do these things, therefore I'm righteous. And I'll be saved. Father, I pray that you'll show that person their sin. Show that even their righteousness is nothing but filthy rags before your face. They might forsake all for Christ this morning. And for my brethren, might we love one another. Might we receive one another. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, out of love, and walk before you, having a good conscience, that we may say with the Apostle Paul, My boasting is this, the testimony of my conscience is that I conduct myself in holiness and godly sincerity, not in worldly wisdom, but in the grace of God. And I pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, today it is 1232, so we got... A little while, but today we have to be out by 1.30 because there is, a, they're having, I believe it is a graduation that they are having in this building. So, like I said, it's 12.32, so we have a little bit, but just uh, try to be diligent to be out by 1.30. And you all be blessed, and may the Lord be with you. You're dismissed.